Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 37. Um, pushing forward, we're going to do Part 2 of Exterior Wall Cladding. And uh, we talked about cladding as uh, siding, or um, at least when it's termed on the exterior of a dwelling. But let's move on. Uh, we talked about wood and asbestos and cement. Let's talk about metal cladding. Metal cladding has taken on several forms in the past 200 years. While early systems were typically created by castings that were meant to provide a less costly alternative to ornamental stone, many metal cladding systems were also devised as enhanced systems to fireproof the exterior of otherwise vulnerable buildings. As the stamping and rolling methods of the 19th century evolved, Thinner and lighter sheet metals were introduced that similarly could be used to imitate ornate stone and wood carvings. The 20th century saw the use of extrusion production systems that led to the creation and refinement of the curtain wall systems that persist even to today. So let's talk about casting methods. In the early 19th century, cast metals were used in a variety of ways as structural, ornamental, or both uses in buildings. Among the earliest facades that employed cast iron cladding were those constructed by Daniel Badger in the mid-1820s in New York and the Miner's Bank in, believe it or not, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, constructed in 1830 by John Havland. By the mid-19th century, Various cast and rolled metals, for example, iron and bronze, were in the use as cladding on exterior walls, as increased production capabilities made these materials more readily available. While the early con contributions of Badger and Halavan are noteworthy in the introduction of cast iron architecture, James Bogars became the major figure in this field after he erected, in 1849, the Edgar Lang Stores, a warehouse in New York that has been recognized as the first structure with self-supporting, multi-storied exterior walls of iron. These facades consisted of assembly of smaller pieces that were bolted together and attached to the structure of an otherwise plain building. One compelling feature of cast iron facades is that they could be crafted in a foundry and shipped via the burgeoning network of railroads to remote locations where they were assembled on the building site. When completed, the facade could be finished with sand paint to give the building the look of stone. Cast iron facades remained popular until just after the turn of the 20th century. The early 20th century saw the introduction of numerous metals and metal alloys, including steel, aluminum, and stainless steel, to systems, that is, that were crafted and assembled in a manner similar to that of cast iron. These systems were the early forerunners of the modern curtain wall assemblies that became common in the middle of the 20th century. The first true modern curtain wall building in the United States is credited to the architect Willis Polk, whose Halliday building was completed in 1918 in San Francisco. Historically, curtain walls consisted of an assembly of many repetitions of 
framing, cladding panels, glazings, connections, and structural supports. Over time, curtain wall systems have been classified into four categories, stick, unit, unit, and mullion, and panel. Stick system installation began in the mullions, with the mullions, and then the horizontal rails were installed. The insert panels go next, followed by the glazing. This system is the earliest form of the modern curtain wall construction and is still in use today. Unit systems are composed entirely of a repeated sequence of modular units pre-assembled at a factory. The units include spandrel glass panels, non-transparent glazing, which was introduced in 1935, and sometimes regular vision glazing to serve as a window. The vertical and horizontal edges form the mullions and rails, respectively, between the adjoining units. One unit can be up to three stories tall. The unit and mullion system are a combination of a stick and unit systems. The mullions are installed first, and the pre-assembled units are then installed between them. The unit can be a single story in height or consist of smaller separate spandrel and vision glazing subunits. Panel systems are similar to unit systems, except that the panels are not pre-assembled units, but instead homogeneous sheet metal or castings. The panel system comes in two types, architectural and industrial. Architectural panels are designed for a specific building, while industrial panels are uniformly made and distributed for simpler repetitive facades. In addition to vision and spandrel glazing, infill panels could consist of metal alloys and, by say the mid-1950s, composite materials based on fiberglass and other polymers. Other panel types were also composed of combinations of perforated panels, mesh materials, or more sculptural elements, such as louvers. As the effects of weathering were recognized, Aluminum became increasingly popular due to its lightweight and its self-sealing patina of oxides that help protect it from the many of the effects of exterior weather and pollutions. In 1924, porcelain enamel metals, metal panels were introduced. Based on earlier technologies from Germany, these panels consisted of ceramic frit or enamel paint fused to a metal substrate. Originally, these panels were available only in black or white and were primarily used on gas stations and food service buildings before World War II. Post-war manufacturers significantly expanded the color palette and marketed these panels to a broader architectural audience. Unfortunately, while the enamel protected the exposed surface, the base metal substrate was very, very vulnerable to corrosion if exposed to moisture. Although marketed as durable, low-maintenance products, the panels could be buckled by their force of winds or dented by objects striking them. When this occurred, the porcelain enamel could crack or chip or expose the substrate beneath it. These forces could also act upon to open joints at the edges of the panels. By their very nature, curtain walls included many joints between the various components. Early systems used a variety of materials to seal these joints. But by the mid-20th century, the forerunners of modern sealants were being used. In the 1950s, the increased use of metal curtain wall construction, 
with its greater need for expansion and contraction tolerances, brought about the introduction of elastometric sealants that could accommodate these tolerances. By the early 1960s, <coughs> a range of sealants were being used that were derived from butyl, which is a synthetic rubber, polysulfide, acrylic, and silicone-based formulations. Weathering and aging in some of these products became increasingly evident by the late 20th and early 21st centuries and led to the refitting of many early curtain wall systems. After the piecemeal repair and replacement, the decision to reclad the entire building at some time was made. The curtain wall system was removed, and this is if much corrosion had occurred, and replaced with a system derived from an original plans using contemporary curtain wall technologies. Although the new appearance is identical to the original, this practice begs the question of whether the building is still the original building or just a replication of it. So let's bring in sheet metal. metal metals fabrication technologies of the late 19th century allowed a variety of decorative patterns to be stamped into metal panels and strips that were later fashioned either directly to exterior sheathing or mounted on a supported framework. These patterns range from simulated brick to ornamental carvings. As discussed previously, metals were used for ornamental cornices to simulate carved stone. The cornice was built up from a frame covered with stamped, rolled, or break-form metal cladding. Due to the hollow nature of the final assembly, these features were vulnerable to corrosion if material, material and any kind of moisture penetrated to the interior. Edward Trollbois patented a sheet metal clabbered in 1903, and John J. Murren patented sheet metal weatherboards in 1928. However, the 1939 patent of Frank Hobus led to the widespread use of aluminum siding, <coughs> excuse me, which was introduced in 1946. The burgeoning housing market exploded after World War II, led to the demand for the cladding system that was readily available faster to install and less expensive than traditional clabber or shingle systems. While aluminum siding was used on both new and existing homes, one of its key selling points was reduced maintenance, particularly painting. Unfortunately, as homeowners have since discovered, the paint that comes on the original aluminum siding can decay and wear off. When this happens, the repainting cycle for the siding becomes familiar to that of regular wood siding. The introduction of asphalt roofing products created possibly of adapting asphalt-based building papers to siding applications. In some instances, roofing products were directly applied or adapted to siding by nailing them to the sheathing. More commonly, rolls of asphalt paper were fastened to the sheathing. Like roofing products, asphalt siding included stone granules on the exposed surface to protect it from ultraviolet radiation decay. These granules could be configured to imitate wood grain, stone, or brick bond pattern. In addition to the granules, asbestos may have been used to make the product more durable and heat resistant. Asphalt siding was extremely popular during the Depression and is a siding material for low-cost housing. Asphalt siding that is exposed to long periods of sunlight or 
in its close contact with humans and animals, is prone to more rapid decline in performance. Like its roofing counterpart, asphalt siding is vulnerable to granular erosion and tearing from wind and mechanical contact, as well as failure due to sunlight and moisture exposure. Although a structural component, such as a load-bearing wall, can support and enclose a building, as in the case of logs, bricks, and even masonry, the function of cladding is to provide protection from exterior environment forces, environmental forces. Cladding materials are vulnerable to many of the same decay mechanisms, rising damp, differential set settling, insects, rot, and corrosion, that plague structural components made from those same type of materials. Therefore, inspection and testing methods similar to those used used to assess the conditions of structural materials can be applied as appropriate to cladding systems as well. The primary problems in cladding systems result from the direct and indirect effects of moisture, sunlight, and wind. Rain, melting snow, and groundwater all present problems for cladding assemblies. The two most vulnerable areas are the joints between the discontinuous materials and the protected coatings. Lack of maintenance for either of these two entry points begins the decline of the cladding process. The next area of concern is the deterioration of the roof and the eaves or or parapet above the wall to which the cladding is attached. While the joints and surfaces may be intact, moisture penetration can can occur within the wall as the roof and eaves begin to fail. Lastly, the construction practices and the quality of the materials used need to be assessed to determine if a problem was built into the wall assembly initially. The construction problems, for example, poor to no flashing, poor vapor barrier installation, inferior materials, may arise within the original construction or as part of a more recent modification. Visible signs of early moisture problems include open joints, corrosion or rot, and failed exterior finishes. As deterioration proceeds, the substructure of the cladding within the wall begins to fail, causing sagging, bulging, and cracking to become increasingly prominent. Moisture penetrating from the wall within the cladding assembly is indicated by peeling paint or finishes and soiling stains emitting from the joints. The prolonged continuation of the decay mechanisms will cause them to interact and escalate the rate of deterioration until the situation is remedied or the cladding fails. In some instances, the source of the moisture penetration can be quite obvious, but present only seasonally, such as when snow accumulates and remains for a long period of time along the base of the wall during the winter months, or when there is a continual backsplash of water dripping from the roof, striking the ground below and rebounding against the lower portion of the wall. In other cases, the construction or changes to the construction may be to blame, as when drainage systems are compromised or removed and water is allowed to run freely down the face of a wall, including its joints. If inadequate or no drip edges are incorporated into and along the horizontal joints, Water can flow by surface tension or be drawn by capillary action into the joint, 
end, in turn, into the interior of the cladding assembly itself. Less obvious may be the water that enters the envelope from the otherwise unidentified leak in the roof, cornice, eave, or parapet construction, located above the failing cladding. With With the advent of the concept of drainage planes, cladding systems were designed to permit moisture migration within the wall to flow downward to the base of the wall and to be relieved through weep holes and other openings. These weep holes may have been inadvertently plugged by being overpainted, allowing soiling products to clog them up, or improperly designed or constructed in the original construction or in later modifications. Low-rise buildings One moisture source comes from landscaping practices that can cause problems. Many buildings may not have originally had plantings along the foundation. As landscape practices practices changed, plantings were introduced in the location. Whether by intent or due to inadequate care, climbing plants seek out sunlight and moisture and can result in vines growing onto and through joints and gaps in the siding. When this happens, moisture and other decay mechanisms for example, insects, further compromise the cladding. Both climbing and non-climbing plants located along the wall can trap moisture and prevent drying sunlight and wind from entering the space between the building and the plants. Inadequate maintenance, for example, raking, pruning, and trimming of these plants, their beds, and adjoining sections of grass can also allow the communication or accumulation of decayed vegetation to eventually build up the soil, which further traps or fosters moisture problems. Lastly, the modern use of sprinklers may deposit water directly on the cladding if sprinkler heads are located too close to the building. While this staining mimics the appearance of rising damp, the water deposits can usually be differentiated by the hand water stains left by repeated cycles of wetting and drying as these have occurred. Exposure to sunlight and heat affects all types of cladding in various ways. The variations in sunlight on each facade cause the south and west facades to experience more decay due to ultraviolet radiation. Facades oriented to the east receive a moderate amount of ultraviolet energy, and those oriented to the north receive the least amount. The ultraviolet energy in sunlight can cause decay in exposed, unfinished wood surfaces or on wood surfaces whose finishes have been allowed to fail. Ultraviolet energy can also cause protective finishes to fail in color and or to deteriorate, for example, turn chalky or flaky. Sunlight and the daily thermal cycles, especially freeze-thaw cycles, cause materials to expand and contract as sunlight shifts and temperatures vary throughout the day and night. For cladding assemblies composed of thermally compatible materials with similar thermal expansion rates and weather-resistant, flexible joints, these variations should be readily understood. However, if one material does not react similarly with the building adjoining it or the thermal expansion is is restricted, internal stresses can build up that can eventually break the materials apart. This problem can become evident when the nail heads are pushed out from the wood siding. Brick and stone mortars spall or disintegrate on their own, and infill panels buckle or flex. However, 
While thermal expansion will occur to some degree in all materials, this problem becomes more pronounced in construction assemblies that use metals in combination with sealants and gaskets. When metal cladding expands and contracts or flexes with sealants and gaskets, when metal cladding expands and contracts again repeatedly over time, metal fatigue can develop. This is noticeable when splits, creases, corrosion, under fractured finishes occur, and unusual bulging or concave surfaces have occurred. When joint sealants age and deteriorate, they lose their flexibility and tend to break apart. Sealant gasket failure then admits moisture into the joints, which can accelerate the decay of the wall cladding. This moisture can attack the... The assembly from the inside, where it is less notable, until exposed pieces fall and fall off the building. Stamped steel cornices, terracotta, stone, and brick veneers, and metal curtain wall assemblies secured in place with ferrous metal anchors are particularly vulnerable to this problem. Wind pressure varies continuously, which causes the cladding to flex repeatedly with the, and cause fatigue in it within the cladding as well as additional stress on the cladding where it is secured to the building. Low tensile strength materials, such as asphalt shingles and metal siding, can fail around these connections also. With sufficient continuous wind pressure, usually strong winds, hurricanes, and tornadoes, the uplift pressure can tear the cladding from a building. More common, however, are the effects of wind-blown objects, such as tree limbs or wires, repeatedly striking the cladding surface which can cause dents, cracks, abrasions of the protective finishes or outright failure of the cladding. On a similar basis, the continuous scouring effect of airborne dust, sand, or ice pellets can abrade the protective finish of the cladding, leaving it exposed to potential decay from atmospheric sources. Smooth or otherwise glossy surfaces can become pitted. If the underlying material absorbs moisture, the material can be vulnerable to moisture-related decay mechanisms. <clears throat> material losses. A building will move in response to the forces of gravity, wind, and seismic activity. This reaction can cause the building to settle, sway, or move substantially based on its construction technology and local soil conditions. The long-term effects of settling include cracked surfaces, spalling masonry, and out-of-plumb doorways and windows, which all contribute to the moisture penetration. The stress and failure caused by wind and seismic events can be similar to those due to settling, but they are more readily noticed after a significant wind or seismic event. Connections can fail, joints can open, and cladding can swag or fall from the building. As corrosion or rot begins and the cladding begins to decay without consistent maintenance, these components fail and allow decay mechanisms to further destroy the cladding and the material beneath it. Similarly, wind events can strip away small portions of the cladding, which also accelerate the decay and of the cladding. While the cladding is co- compromised in this manner, Moisture enters the assembly and eventually affects the interior spaces of a building. As decay sets in and cladding begins to fail, precautions must be taken to protect public safety.
protect netting, screening, and hard enclosures over enduring sidewalks and public assembly areas must be installed to ensure that material falling from the building cannot potentially cause harm to people passing below. The combination of soiling, moisture, and inadequate maintenance is a recipe for accelerated failure of cladding. Air pollution, dust, and bird droppings can be directly deposited on the cladding or carried onto the cladding as runoff from poorly maintained gutters and roofs. Beyond the aesthetic issues of the soiling itself, the accumulation of these materials can invite biological growths and chemical reactions that accelerate decay. Biological growths such as moss, lichens, and small plants can take root. If left in place, the roots can grow sufficiently and begin breaking apart the joints between the cladding systems. When this occurs, moisture and its related problems can penetrate beneath the cladding. For materials like wood and ferrous metals, the moisture can pose a substantial problem. Chemical reactions from air, air pollution, and acid rain can react with surface finishes and cause them to fail much more rapidly than normal. Painted surfaces can fail and and finishes can be dulled or become etched from continued corrosive contact. So rather than be allowed to accumulate unchecked, the soiling materials must be removed as part of the ongoing maintenance program and wherever possible, the source of the contamination must, must be removed or mitigated. While many cladding systems are not considered historic, if they were installed as the original cladding, when a building was first built 50 or more years ago. Substitute siding is, is any exterior cladding material that is placed directly over or is used <coughs> to replace pre-existing exterior cladding material installed in an earlier historic period. The most common recent forms of substitute siding on residential buildings are aluminum and subsequently vinyl. Vinyl siding and imitation masonry veneers Deteriorated and soiled cladding was often considered far too difficult to maintain, and these substitute siding systems were simply installed over the the existing siding (coughs) or cladding materials. In larger buildings, this practice has been a growing connection to preservationists. As many cladding systems of the recent past are rapidly deteriorating. In the past decade, a growing number of of larger buildings have had new replacement cladding installed. In an effort to alleviate problems, surprisingly, however, the use of substitute siding systems is not just a recent phenomenon. By the mid-17th century, clabber were used over the exposed existing wattle and daub of the earliest colonial buildings to reduce maintenance and improve their appearance and performance. Furthermore, evidence of this continued philosophical approach can be traced back 300 years as new materials and construction systems evolved. For example, cast iron and stamped metal panels were used to modernize the appearance of existing buildings in the early 19th century. This practice has continued down to the present whenever the modernization of a building's exterior is contemplated using the term modern material system over an older building. 
The two major problems can occur when cladding is installed over an original cladding system of a building. And this is a building built from an earlier period, obviously. First, the new siding may not correct the decay mechanisms acting on the original cladding. Second, the installation method itself used may irreversibly damage or remove historic fabric, which is not intended to do so. An example of the first case is when water from a leaking roof or an inadequately maintained gutter system has entered the wall <clears throat> assembly internally. The installation will not necessarily eliminate the problem source. Furthermore, the new cladding will conceal this continuing decay and decay from other subsequent decay mechanisms, for example, mold, rot, corrosion, or insect damage. Unfortunately, and ultimately, this decay, decay can result in the complete failure of both the original and new cladding, and the continued penetration of moisture into the interior cavities and materials beneath it. <coughs> the second problem that substitute siding creates in its installation approach, many substitute siding systems require a flat plane to which new cladding is attached. The installation often requires the removal of existing ornamental or character-defining features of the building to establish a necessary, quote, flat plane. Also, these items are cut back or removed altogether and discarded. Similarly, the attached methods, for example, masonry mortars, adhesives, or mechanical fasteners may permanently damage the original building's cladding. The irre irreversible nature of these approaches has created numerous problems when the goals of a project have been to restore the original exterior appearance. So it's already been ruined. So let's talk about recommended treatments. <clears throat> Due to the ev evolving nature of cladding systems, accept acceptable treatments are extremely varied. However, they generally fall into three categories, conserve, repair, and replace. In certain instances, the cladding may no longer be manufactured for new construction and is available only through salvage situations. More commonly, the existing material can simply be conserved, repaired, or, if need be, replaced by using techniques in common use today. Adapting current techniques to earlier practices or reusing traditional building methods. Lastly, it may be necessary to replace a large portion, if not all, of the existing cladding if it is too badly deteriorated or poses a safety or life threat. Cladding made of the <coughs> traditional materials described earlier in the, uh, in the episode can use the same remediation techniques and treatments described there for each type of material. Therefore, for the sake of brevity, those treatments, treatments will not be re repeated here. More problematic and idiosyncratic are the numerous curtain wall systems built in the mid-20th century. While they are made from many of these same otherwise historic materials, their fabrication and construction methods were sometimes more experimental in nature. As a result, these systems require closer evaluation to determine how well they are performing.
Many cladding, cladding systems will not last more than a few decades without some maintenance to keep them viable. Annual and seasonal maintenance provides the needed attention to catch up and eliminate decay mechanisms before they become substantial. In this regard, a maintenance log of all activities related to the cladding should be developed to enable a long-term view of reoccurring issues and may point to a more serious problem. Each cladding system is vulnerable to specific decay mechanisms as described earlier. Overall, however, the careful assessment and conversation <clears throat> and conversion of joints and surface finishes and overall physical integrity is very important in maintaining the existing historic fabric. As part of the ongoing maintenance of the building, care must be taken to monitor these conditions. While sudden natural and man-made events can cause readily noticed damage, long-term effects of weathering, aging, and decay may not be readily noticed. Two aspects of the inspection of the overall condition of the cladding are important. First, it is important to assess the integrity of the surface materials. For example, finishes, structural integrity, continuity, and visual appearance. The joints between materials, for example, missing caulk, sealants, flashing, or gaskets, and connections, for example, missing damage or deterioration. Second, the overall cladding should be evaluated to see if it remains in its proper orientation and it is not bulging, bowing, or sagging, or showing other signs of internal failure of its connection systems with the substructure. When problems are discovered, one should note that note them down and develop an overall assessment of the existing conditions. Nominal problems can be readily fixed. On the other hand, a review of the overall systems may indicate a larger, more serious problem. For example, corrosion has compromised the connection and joints or moisture penetration is occurring on a much broader scale than we expected. So as buildings age or as the goal of conserving the historic integrity of the original materials becomes more important. Conservation strategies allow the retention of a much more historic fabric as possible and make it more economically feasible. Preservation has been referred to as long-term applied maintenance, and that concept is quite valid here. What is important is to look at the detail and the, to, the, to gain a broad overview and understand the indecision to forgo an experience, an expensive conservation procedure that would result in the loss of a complete building, then appropriate repair or replacement treatment strategies must be selected. These strategies must be chosen by care. So let's talk about some of these repair, st repair strategies. A step up from construction occurs when deferred maintenance has caused cladding materials to fail. Here still, through the need to take both a detailed view and a broad view remains critical, as a series of numerous small repairs may mask a larger overall problem. At this point, initiating repairs becomes necessary. When done annually as part of the maintenance program, these repairs may be relatively normal. These problems should not be neglected for long periods of time, since they have typically compromised the overall integrity of the cladding system.
which in turn can accelerate decay situations and problems. Many technologies for roofing repairs <clears throat> can be directly applied to similar vertical cladding products. Shingles, clapboards, and other cladding veneers can be replaced with exact replacements. If available or when compatible products of similar size, material, and construction, appropriately form- formulated epoxies and repair adhesives for wood, cement materials, and some other can be used to reinforce the consolidated falling materials. Dutchman and other spliced inserts can typically be used as long as they have compatible physical characteristics, physical and visual, and they can be differentiated from the original materials and are reversible. For sophisticated cladded systems, such as the curtain walls and thin veneer masonry systems, consultation with the original manufacturers, if they are still in business, is an almost certain requirement. Original records, such as shop drawings, can illustrate how the cladding system is fabricated and give clues to how it was installed. If necessary, strategic removal of individual units, panel components, and or interior portions may be needed to ascertain the condition of the construction materials and the construction practices used in the original installation. When this information is known, an appropriate repair strategy can be implemented. By reviewing the long-term maintenance log, one can decide whether to continue repairs on a piecemeal basis or pursue more significant replacement strategies. So let's talk about a few of these strategies. The standards permit in-kind replacement of materials when the original materials are missing or too deteriorated to retain. However, While replacements of common materials such as wood shingles and siding have product assemblies, for example, brick veneers or stucco, is allowed. This frequently creates a dilemma when synthetic materials, for example, terracotta and cast stone, and complex assemblies, curtain walls, thin veneer cladding are in question. Cutting, casting, and other replication techniques may provide the opportunity to formulate suitable replacements as needed. However, in construction technologies advanced from the period of the original installation, many of the fabricated products of the companies that made them cease to exist today. Some quarries close, a a certain grade of species of wood becomes expensive, uh, and companies drop product lines or go out of business. Modern construction practices include many contemporary products and methods that may appear to replicate the original installation, but caution must be used when selecting them. As noted in earlier chapters, substitute materials available today may appear appropriate when they first installed, installed, but subsequently may decay, say due to wind and sun exposure and physical incompatibility, or even poor installation practices. Replacement materials should be chosen for among the materials approved for local preservation oversight agencies that are physically compatible and best to serve the long-term preservation needs of the building and or neighborhoods. For example, medium-density fiberboard, MDF, is frequently an acceptable choice, while vinyl siding is not. As the curtain wall systems constructed in the mid-20th century age, and in some cases deteriorate, 
or no longer meet contemporary performance demands. A question has been raised. What actually constitutes preservation and keeping a building authentic? With many curtain wall replacements, there have been opportunities to deconstruct the cladding and replace it. While the visual appearance and detailing of the original construction were achieved, the question remains as to whether this replacement was a preservation project or a reconstruction project. The image remains the same, but the authenticity is no longer there. The question pervades all <coughs> levels of preservation technology as original materials are discarded due to poor maintenance practices or the misconception that they cannot be restored economically. Unless there is a serious underlying decay problem, like extensive rot or corrosion, much of the damage may actually consist of only superficial finished problems. Simulated masonry veneers and aluminum siding and subsequently vinyl siding were frequently installed on older residential homes to enhance their appearance and reduce maintenance costs. In non-residential buildings, curtain wall systems were introduced in the early 20th century, as an exterior cladding system on new buildings were. <clears throat> By the 1950s, being installed on many commercial buildings built in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as owners began to update their buildings. This trend continued into the late 20th century, but began to be reversed in some locations as the unique architectural character of the buildings was recognized for its historic value and appearance. So in a number of projects, previous replacement cladding systems were exposed in the hope of recapturing the original appearance of the building, <coughs> only to reveal the substantial damage done to the original historic building's fabric when the replacement or substitute siding was installed. When any of these replacement cladding systems were used, many historic buildings also suffered additional damage as decay me mechanisms continued to subsequently, which had started in the areas concealed by the substitute siding, and then by the type of fasteners that were used to hold it on. So the very bad thing, these fasteners, but So if removal of the sub substitute siding is an option, evaluate the condition of the cladding beneath it, using an approach similar to that being used in investigating potential repair needs. Selected proportions of the siding may be removed to gain access to original cladding beneath it to determine its condition. As the siding is removed, note the extent of damage caused by the installation of the siding alone and attempt to identify locations where previous protruding features, such as trim, brackets, and building ornaments, may have been located. The best approach to determine <clears throat> what might be missing is to look for the physical evidence of an element's having been cut back, the witness marks of something that has been removed. For example, outlines of trim profiles where paint was applied to the trim piece or subsequent coats of paint have been built up along the edge of a removed ornament, or to interpret historic photographs if they are available. Replacement features must be based on physical evidence only. That's an important fact. So that finishes up uh, part two of exterior wall cladding. My apologies, having a, a coughing fit here, and 
possibly need some more water during this process. This was a, a relatively long segment. Uh, in addition, look for The Historic Preservation, not on just podcast, but on IGTV and on Instagram. And on Instagram, you're going to have one-minute videos. Uh, I believe we may have over 1,100 one-minute videos, historic preservation videos, clock videos, in-shop videos, and things of that nature. Some of the longer videos fall over into the uh, IGTV, which are about 14, 15 minutes long. And also look for our Historic Preservationist YouTube channel. So you'll see us live there. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.